Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together with Bruce, we have written three dozen cookbooks, including the latest out this fall of 2023, The Look and Cook Air Fryer Bible. It has 125 simple and easy air fryer recipes, but better than that, it has 704 photographs. Count them. That 704. Was oh my God. <laughs> three huge photographs. Photo shoots to get 704 photos of every step of every mm. recipe. The whole thing is photographed start to finish. Kind of an insane project. Yes. We're not talking about air frying today, although we do love air frying. We're going to instead talk about food waste and three apps that you can use to actually cut down on food waste. This is kind of fascinating. And I didn't know anything about this until Bruce brought it up. Bruce has an interview with Matt Moore, the author of Butcher on the Block. We've got, of course, our one-minute cookie tip and we're going to talk about what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get started. Food waste is a real thing. And from restaurants to home cooks to just anybody that buys food tends to throw a lot of it away. It is. And I am so happy that I found these apps because they're so great. They What they do is they allow neighbors to share food with each other. Let's say you made a dozen cookies and you only want to eat one. Well, you can give away 11 cookies via this app to people who live near you. Restaurants can use it to share their leftovers at the end of the day. And if you just want to volunteer, some of these apps need volunteers to pick up food and deliver. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell a personal story for a minute, if I can. Yeah. Um, you, back in the day, when I was a little kid... Uh, we did a lot of work at a place in Dallas called Union Gospel Mission. And it was this place that fed homeless people on the street. And, of course, you had to come in and hear a sermon. It was it was related to a church. And you heard a sermon, and then you got fed dinner. And so we did a lot of cooking down there, even as a kid. And we would go to grocery stores. This is way back in the day. And we would ask them what they had that was off or that had expired. And I would come in with boxes and ask. <laughs> and they they would always send me in. I think they thought like the nine-year-old got a better response than <laughs> the adults. Of I don't you know. Would. But I would go in and I would talk about Union Gospel Mission and that we were going to, you know, make dinner and we just needed some food if they had anything to donate. And they would. But I mean, here's the thing. It always felt like begging, and I was always slightly embarrassed as a kid to go in a grocery store and say, oh, you know, what do you got? Meat that's gone off today, gone off. Well, at least expired for today. So what I think is cool about these apps is that it doesn't feel like begging. Mm -hmm. This is actually a way to cut down on food waste that kind of is ethical um, yeah. and has a little bit more, uh, this is what I like, anonymity about it. So what's the first one? So the first one is called Olio. O-L-I-O. Remember, they have websites. You can go to olio.com and find out about it. But to access any of the services, you have to download the app Olio. O-L-I-O. So you set up an account for free and you could browse free food items to pick up locally. There are no delivery options. You're going to have to be able to get to the store or get to the restaurant or who's ever giving it away. So a restaurant might say, hey, we have, you know, extra hamburgers tonight and we can't save. So you're going to be able to find out where they are and go get them. Okay. So now let's just stop before we go forward. Let's stop. So this is basically restaurants and food service places and maybe supermarkets who have excess stuff that yes. they cannot get rid of at the end of the day. So you have to be ready with Olio to go get it. 
That's you, part of the problem, you right? You do, but Olio has 7 million members worldwide, including 86,000 volunteers. The volunteers can rescue unsold food from uh, local businesses there you go. and bring it to you or bring it to a place where you can well, get you it. Well, you said no delivery option available. My hunch is a lot of those volunteers go and deliver them to charitable organizations. Yep. Yep. But maybe there's a charitable organization you can connect to if that's something that you want to do. But you can also do this on your own, and I think that this is what's kind of cool about Olio is that you can do this and set it up on your own, go on your own to pick up items. Um, please don't think that you're somehow stealing them out of the mouths of charities because, honestly, there is more food waste, particularly in the United States and Canada, than there can possibly be people who need it. So you're not taking food out of the mouths right. of the Red Cross. But there's another aspect to Olio that I really love, and it's sort of the social media, almost Craigslist kind of thing about it. Oh, Let's before it, Craigslist it, became all sex. <laughs> before it did. So now it's, the Olio is sort of like the food of Craigslist or the Craigslist of food. So you make two dozen cookies, three dozen cookies, you bake four cakes, you make four pizzas, for whatever reason. Let's say you were having a party, right. and then people didn't show up, and right. you have all this food left over. You could post it on Olio, and if your neighbors are also members of Olio, they could find out that you have two pizzas, and they can come take them from you. So that's a yeah. really nice way to share with your neighbors. Yeah, it is. Or people in your town. We live very rurally, as you probably know if you listen to this podcast, in New England. And there is a great deal of economic disparity in our town. Mm -hmm. In a typical New England town, we have a lot of ex-New Yorkers, ex-techies, a lot of ex-show business people, and they eat up a lot of the wealth. And then we have a lot of people who were born here, generationally born here. We have one road that essentially holds one family <laughs> in this town. And uh, those people have been born here for years. And those people uh, along that road, by the way, that family is not necessarily in poverty. No, not at all. But I'm just saying that there are people here who are generationally mm -hmm. in this town. But beyond that family on that road, back in the woods, and we live very remotely, and there are a lot of back in the woods, there are a lot of very poor people. We, we know a place, in fact, around us where there are four cabins behind a house that are non-electrified and non-plumbed, and people live in them. The family offers these homes to people who don't have any shelter. So they're not electrified, they're not heated, they're not right. plumbed, but there is a lot of po and these people couldn't connect to Olio, but there is a lot of poverty around right. us. Yeah, as Mark said, you need to be internet connected, you have to have either a smartphone or a tablet yep. to be able to download the app, so there is a certain level of economic wealth or situation that you have to have to use it, and it's something that I'll consider using in the future when we do our photo shoots. For our book, we shoot, as Mark said, we shot 704 photos for the new book. Right. That's a lot of food we're making, and I give it to my neighbors all the time. But it would be nice if I could post on Olio that, you know, today we shot three pies, two cakes, and four stews. And if you want to come by, I could leave it in a cooler at the road, and you can have some free food. And so we're going to move on to the second app, which is called Too Good To Go, and that's T-O-O, -O, Good To Go, Too Good To Go. But before we get there, let me just say that it, what, what it, one of the things that can be interesting about this, if you want to become more involved in this, is not only for you to have food that is uh, potentially bound for the food waste bin, but also if you live, as we do, again, rurally, you can pick up food and have it delivered to your community center 
Mm-hmm. Let's say you live, um, I don't know, let's say you live 40 miles, 50 miles outside of Lincoln, Nebraska. You could find places in Lincoln, Nebraska that are on the verge of throwing out food and bring it back to your small town center. And I would bet you that there are people in your town that could use that food, even if you don't use it. So let's talk about Too Good to Go. So Too Good to Go is a great way both to eat well, because you're going to get some decent food and save money. And it's great for the food business because this is only for food businesses to make a little extra money out of what they otherwise would have thrown out. So we're talking here mostly restaurants. Mostly restaurants, but also some stores. So here's how it works. You could browse through nearby locations on the app to find out what you like. Then you reserve what they have. So you have to actually reserve in advance and then go pick it up. So if it's a supermarket, you might find that they have, in the morning, they'll say, we have three bags of produce that are going to be available at $8 a bag. Now, you know if you went in the morning, those bags of produce might cost you $30, and you don't necessarily know what you're going to get, but they know Every day they have X amount of produce left over. I mean, we when we were uh, out trolling the app and uh, trolling, looking around the app, didn't we l- see a chocolate store that had bloomed <laughs> yeah. chocolate on it? Okay. If you don't know what that means, that means some of the fat has come to the surface and given it that kind of white, foggy film. There's nothing wrong with no, the chocolate. No, it's still perfectly edible. You just can't sell it. They can't, well, the store selling chocolates at like $80 a pound. It's in New York in Times Square. And... $80 a pound chocolates are out of the reach of most people. Yeah, out but of the reach of this people. Go on to Too Good to Go, and they were sound, They said they had 10 boxes of chocolates that were perfectly edible, but they had bloomed, so they can't sell them, and they were like $5 a box. Yeah, so you can you reserve go. it, go in and get it. So it's a way to have some really nice chocolate, really cheap. So. This works from fish stores, produce stores, chocolate stores. It's really nice. Yeah, we even found when we were looking at the app too. Didn't we find something about fish heads and tails? <laughs> yep. That some store was basically giving away fish heads and tails from fillets. And while you may think, well, who wants fish heads and tails? Well, maybe you want to make fish stock, which yep. actually in our cookbook house we would actually do. Oh, right? I would drive to get Bruce, free fish. Bruce made fish stock for Pesach, right? Mm, for the gefilte fish. Yep. When you made gefilte fish, so I mean this. Is Something might we might do, but you can also get mystery bags on Too Good to Go. <laughs> yeah, a store knows it's going to have X amount of leftovers every day, or a restaurant or a diner, but they don't necessarily know what it's going to be. So you can reserve a mystery bag in the morning for five dollars, eight dollars, ten dollars, and you know you will get thirty or forty dollars worth of food, but you so don't know what it's going to be. It's so I think this is such interesting stuff. Olio, Too Good to Go, and this last app, Flash Food. Mm. It's a great way to cut down on food waste and save some money along the way. Okay, so let's talk about Flash Food. Flash Food is great. It's almost like having a super coupons in a supermarket. So you go to Flash Food and you look for supermarkets in your area, and then you literally go shopping on the app. And stores always do markdowns when you're in the store for milk that's going to go bad in two days or meat that's going to go bad tomorrow. So on Flash Food, you'll find yogurt for 25 cents a pint because it's going to expire in two days and the store would rather give it to you for 25 I mean, cents and get rid of it. I used to do this all the time before there were apps. I used to, we would make banana, both Bruce and I like banana bread and I know that's super <laughs> controversial. How could banana bread be People hate it. But well, that's I, not controversial. That's just idiocy. I, okay, no. But people are allowed their taste. But I, mm. I admit that I don't like banana bread the second day. It does get gummy. So I like it the day it's made. Well, so anyway, we would make banana bread for parties and you know or I would bring banana bread to one of the book groups I lead and 
ultimately have three quarters of it left over because nobody likes banana bread. But anyway, I would go back to that speed rack in the grocery store and buy the bananas that were in the back, usually in the hallway to the restrooms, right. that are on that speed rack of not great produce. Because honestly, for the best banana bread, you want not great right. bananas. You don't want firm, just right bananas. You want overripe you bananas. Do. And the app allows you to buy all the stuff you pay for in advance. It's just like ordering on the supermarket website where you do grocery shopping and then pick it up. Yeah. But this way you're getting only things the store is marking down. You might get sales on food that's really good, but the store just hasn't been able to sell them. So all of a sudden you're getting something really nice that the store has marked down. It's a great way to save some money when you do your and grocery and shopping. We've talked about that Yeah, you can pay for this, that you can pay for this. Did we say this? That you can pay for this with any major credit yep, card you pay or app, debit yep. card or um, on flash food, you can pay for it with SNAP EBT cards. You can, you so can. So even if you're getting all, assistance, you could still use it. That's right. So you can use all kinds of methods. So let's go over these apps one more time. There's Olio, O-L-I-O. I keep spelling it that because I'm old enough to know Olio as with an E, meaning margarine. But okay, <laughs> O-L-I-O, think Italian. That's your Craigslist of food where you can get food from neighbors or from stores where it's all and posted. And then there's Too Good To Go, which is the restaurant and food producer's Mostly. Yeah, mostly. And then there's flash food, which is mostly grocery stores. Mostly grocery stores giving you super discounts on food they know they can't sell. Before we get to that next segment of our podcast, let me say that we have a newsletter. It goes out, well, it has been going out a while, but in case you don't know, I wrecked my shoulder and have been a wreck over my wrecked shoulder. So it hasn't gone out in about a month now, but it is now going out again. So if you would like to sign up for our newsletter, which is not connected to this podcast and has different content than this podcast, go to our website, bruceandmark.com. There is a sign up form on the splash page of our website, bruceandmark.com, and you can sign up there. And again, I say this every time, but I just want to remind you, I have locked it so I don't see your email and I don't see your name. And then uh, I can't sell it, nor can the service I use sell your name to any mailing list. And furthermore, any email always includes an unsubscribe button if you don't want to get these emails anymore. So you can do that on our website, bruceandmark.com. Up next, our one-minute food cooking tip. The tip is to improvise in cooking, not baking. Right. If you think that you make a vinaigrette, I don't know, and you think it would be nice to add a little cumin to your vinaigrette, mm. try it out. Yep. And see what cumin tastes like in your vinaigrette. But do not make some kind of wild substitution in baking because, as we've said a million times, and as is the truth, cooking is physics, but baking is chemistry. Mm -hmm. So you got to get the formula right in you baking do. for it to work. Um, yeah, that's it's really important. I, I think I've told you this before, but I had a friend who substituted cornstarch for flour. Well, they're both white and powdery. That's what she said in a baking recipe. And well, so's cocaine. I guess you could try um, that. I, nice. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, yeah, don't experiment in your baking, but do experiment in your cooking mm -hmm. and use a recipe as a guideline, not necessarily a rule. Okay, before we get to our interview segment of this podcast, let me say that it would be great if you could rate this podcast, if you could drop down on the Apple 
page or the Google page or any place where you get your podcast and simply look there. It tells you how to rate it. And it says write a comment or write a review. Man, that would be great. Even mm. nice podcast. We had a recent rating where someone just said nice podcast. Thank you so much for that because that is honestly what does the analytics a world of good. Mm. And otherwise, we are unsupported except for your support. So thanks for doing that. Okay, up next, Bruce's interview with Matt Moore, author of Butcher on the Block. This is a book that Bruce loved. Bruce mm. is a carnivore from long ago, and he was very excited when he got Butcher on the Block in the mail. Hey, this morning, we're talking with Matt Moore. He's the author of the book Butcher on the Block, everyday recipes, stories, and inspirations from your local butcher and beyond. Hey, Matt. Hey, good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Hey, you come from a line of butchers, and so does your wife, and your book is a story of butchers, the butchers you've met and even around the world. And you say right up front in the book, no matter what level of home butchering you can do, it's great to have a relationship with a local butcher. Why is that? You know, for me, um, this book was personal. Uh, my grandfather and, and going back even to my great, great grandfather come from the trade of butchering. And it's always been a necessity, no matter where you travel and which culture. Um, it, it, it's a trusted relationship. And I think you know, during the 70s and 80s and 90s of the mass trends of the supermarket, we sort of lost track of of the the quality and care that goes into shaping our food. And uh, for me, um, being able to travel throughout the world, uh, especially in Europe, that's still a tradition that's very much rich and still alive. And I think uh, my inspiration came after writing a book on, on, on barbecue called The South's Best Butts and following that with Cereal Griller on Live Fire Grilling. Um, you know, that book came out in COVID and I would go to the grocery store and I would see things like whole chickens just sitting there, even though there was scarcity or beef ribs or London broils and all these different cuts. And it kind of dawned on me that a lot of people just don't know how to utilize those ingredients. And without maybe having a butcher to tell you, hey, this is how you cook it, um, that offered an opportunity for me to explore my own family roots, but also to combine you know, the ideas that I, I think I'm known for in terms of barbecue and grilling would then open up this whole platform that it could be barbecued, it could be grilled, it could be raw, it could be roasted and fried. And that sense of community of, of a butcher that's going to be able to explain and, and customize or fabricate those cuts, as well as giving you uh, expertise and cooking tips, just really opened up the door. And um, it was a great conduit for me to strike up some friendships and continue to, to, to write great books and, and meet really interesting people. Do you think that's a universal skill of butchers that they all know how to cook? <laughs> you know, they're probably the most underpaid uh, cooks or really all of them should, should have their own cookbooks. But the most common question is, how do you cook this to the butcher? Right. And, you know, I think they appreciate that question because ultimately they're in business and they want you to have a great experience with what they sell and they want you to come back to that business. And so part of providing that quality product is also the advice on how to have a fantastic result. One of the reasons I like to go to a butcher is for dry aged beef. Can you talk about what that means? What does dry aging do to meat? And is there any way we can come close to doing a decent and safe job of it at home? Yeah, so you know, aging is a, a technique that's been around really since the beginning of, of actually butchering and, and eating animals, but specifically with, with beef, um, you know, the process of dry aging is I think really what separates a lot of the local butcher shops from um, primarily the, the mass stores that you're going to find that wet age, right? So wet aging is typically 
you know, after maybe hanging for a period of time, it's going to be packed and sealed and quote unquote kind of age on its way to transport into the store. And the reason that that takes place is because they don't have any loss of mass, right? If they're wet aging, they're not going to be reducing the actual weight and, and quantity of the beef. So it's it's better from a commercial standpoint. Dry aging, you know, specifically we're talking about uh, under time and temperature control, allowing that that meat to age for, um, you know, at minimum a couple of days, upwards of 75 to 90 days. And it's basically going to be, be breaking itself down and losing mass over time, which enhances, um, in my opinion, a lot of the flavor. And so you are losing a lot of product to the dry aging process. And it is something that, as I mentioned earlier, has to be under proper temperature um, and, and storage and control, which a lot of the, the butchers have, have honed in on this process. It's sort of like saying, teach me how to make wine. Well, I mean, <laughs> it could take a lifetime to master. And yeah. so I think that's a big differentiation. You know, I would be amiss without not covering the subject lightly in, in the book. The first line of the book is, this is not a book about butchering per se, rather it is about the butcher. You know, that being said, we do give a primer on how to do some basic things at home, like breaking down a whole chicken, filleting a fish, mm -hmm. doing a beef tenderloin, even uh, going so far as frenching a pork chop. But we we visit slightly the idea of dry aging at home because technology has come a long way. And now we can source these dry aging bags that allow us within our own refrigerator, so we don't have to do a whole lot of time and and temperature control to use those bags and produce a, a, a quality result at home. There's a recipe in your book from the Rim Family Butchers in Cambridge City, Indiana. And this recipe strikes me as fantastic and easy, but might scare a lot of people. It only has two ingredients. So tell me about this dish. This is a, a recipe that I almost left uh, and headed back to Nashville um, and would have missed out on, on my visit. But I believe we might have had a few cold beverages at this point. We were having some hogshead tacos and uh, Jerry Rim, who's the family patriarch, had, had talked to me about working the line and how they would spend days of processing one of his favorite snacks. He didn't even have a chance to leave the floor and they would cut out the little tips at the ends of uh, roasts and ribeyes and they just dunk them in some Worcestershire and then they would eat those all day long. Yeah. And I kind of paused and I said, well, where's that recipe? I don't see that out. And he literally got in his little uh, truck and, and drove up to the plant and trimmed up some steak and soaked it. And, you know, it's one of those moments where time and place kind of stop. And that's that's a moment I always crave when I'm out seeking recipes. And just the the, the mix of the trimmed meat just soaked in that kind of smoky, tangy, umami style sauce, mm -hmm. just with just the right bite, maybe a little bit of a crusty bread alongside of it. I said, that's a super simple recipe. That's why I'm out on the road is to get the good stuff. And I was super thankful to, for them to deliver it to me. I can't wait to try that. Um, especially we do a homemade Worcestershire around here. And to, oh, wow. that sounds like we have to do it. You tell the story of two butchers in the South of France uh, how did their journey differ from butchers you met in other parts of the world, especially in the U.S.? Well, they were tech guys <laughs> to start <laughs> software and sales. Um, and through some late night conversations, uh, decided that that was just a career that wasn't giving them fulfillment. And, you know, I think the old world qualities, especially in France, there's a tradition of still going to the local butcher, yeah. to the local bakery. You know, the, the mass supermarkets are really things that you, you don't see. They are becoming more common. And I would tell 
way that most people are telling you that it's sort of destroying the culture. So it's a, a big debate. But for them, they wanted to have that connection to community, to family, uh, to pass on a legacy. And so they they literally quit their jobs and went about uh, learning a trade that most people are are apprentices for you know 10 to 15 years. Uh, they said that they worked 10 times that amount in three years and and learned that process and and now have created just a an incredible destination of not only dry and, and specialty age cuts, but also this beautiful world that we call uh, Importe on France, where you know they're not going to the fast food restaurants. They're actually stopping at the local butcher mm. to get the plat du jour, which could be a lasagna or a pork stew the particular day that I was there. And I think that's just a beautiful tradition is that the secret is that some of the best meals that you eat in Europe actually come from the butcher shop. Goes back to that whole thing. We just talked about butchers being these underrated cooks and really knowing what that's about. Besides cooking, is there a common thread in most of the butchers you talk to? I think there's just a thread of service. You know, at the end of the day, um, the butcher is just constantly asked to give. It's a hard job, probably an underpaid job. You know, they are working to take uh, an animal or a sacrifice and and, and utilize every part of that. Um, and that's a, a trend that you're seeing in the whole animal butchering side that a lot of the, the market here in the U.S. doesn't necessarily know how to work that process. And so with that being said, they've got to, you know, work throughout the entire lineage of being able to provide cut me like this, tie it like that. I need a quarter pound of this, not so much of that. Do you have this in stock? And then, as we said earlier, give me your recipe and give me your technique for making it. I think the most unusual butcher you feature in your book has got to be the vegetable butcher in San Francisco. So I have to ask you, what is a vegetable butcher? <laughs> hey, listen, my job as an author is to create a, a time and place and a stamp as to where things are. When I did a barbecue book, you know, I, I had to look at, okay, this is what's historic and this is maybe the future of barbecue. And a lot of people sometimes opine that, hey, barbecue is, is static, but truthfully, it's something that's constantly changing and that's what makes it so great. And so the same thing applies to the world of butchering. There, there's a lot of techniques and traditions that have lasted for you know thousands of years. But this idea of vegetable butchering came about truly because Caramangini was the first quote unquote vegetable butcher in New York's Italy market. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, it makes a whole lot of sense. There's a lot of folks that are intimidated by vegetables and they don't know how to approach them, how to break them down, how to prepare them. And so they created essentially a vegetable butcher in the market. Uh, so that you could take your kohlrabi or your cabbage or whatever that might be and and work with Kara. And, you know, she's somebody that uh, wants to make vegetables more of the center of the plate. And, you know, that's her mission. And I think uh, teaching folks uh, proper techniques in the same way that you break down a whole chicken, you might break down a, a vegetable along the same lines to maximize the flavor and the potential. Um, and so for me, it was really um, a point of diversification in the book to showcase that, you know, butchering is not just meat and game, but it can include vegetables and seafood as well. The recipes in your book are just mouthwatering. The photos are gorgeous and they range from sublime smoked carrots to those hoghead tacos you mentioned earlier. You've got braised oxtails, double cheese smash burgers. You have a few takes on chicken wings, something you claim to be a connoisseur of. So Matt, what makes a great chicken wing? Yeah, I think every book I have, you got to have a couple of uh, chicken wing recipes, right? Uh, that's typically my uh, my night out with with friends as well. Um, 
you know, the, the, a couple of the takes the kind of the smoked lollipop. So, uh, you know, Frenching the bone is, is a, a barbecue technique that you see a lot, uh, especially throughout the competition circuit. I, I will tell you probably my favorite one is just the fried chicken wing. I did it in sort of my grandmother's old fashioned style of just salt, pepper, flour, a little bit of water and just deep fried it in cast iron. And I think oftentimes we think of chicken wings as being more along the buffalo style, either smoked or flash fried without that kind of crispy coating. And I always do tell folks that, you know, whenever you can, um, you know, pick them up, you can source them at your butcher. I like to buy the wings as whole and, and actually take the time with a little cleaver and just kind of pop them between the joint. I think if they've been processed somewhere else, the consistency of the meat is not quite as good. So that's definitely something that I'm often sourcing whole. And it's an item that I'll simply butcher at home or maybe ask, you know, of course, my local butcher to, uh, to take care of that work for me as well. What's your take on sauces with wings? Once you fry them crisp, Toss them with a the sauce or don't toss them with a the sauce? The fried chicken wings in that book do not sauce them. Um, <laughs> now, my wife is a, a connoisseur of all things sauce. So she'll tell you that the house-made blue cheese that I feature in the book is probably one of her go-tos. And uh, we've been married long enough that I just turned my head. Uh, same thing with dry rub ribs. She's always asking where the sauce is, but I don't believe in it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, one of the things I love about your book is you include fish as well as beef, pork, and chicken. I think it's really important to understand fish is meat. And most people understand grilling a steak or smoking a pork shoulder. The thought of cooking a salmon filet can be scary to them. Do you have any tips for success with fish? I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, again, my intention for Butcher on the Block was to create a general cookbook through the lens of the butcher. Um, it's not, like I mentioned, a bunch of technique on butchering. Rather, it's this beautiful window into incredible people, uh, diverse cuisines, great stories, tips and techniques, including seafood. And that's why we traveled to Boston and met Jared Auerbach, who uh, really is just a fantastic uh, person who's kind of upending the seafood industry by changing the way that we source sustainably great seafood. And you're exactly right. A lot of people have a lot of fears when it comes to specifically grilling seafood because is it going to stick to the grate? Is it going to be dried out? Am I going to lose half of it to the coals? And you know, there are a couple of different techniques that I always tell folks, you know, choosing um, a piece like a salmon or uh, the sport fish like a cobia that we have in the book, or even tuna, you know, something that's going to be a little bit more hearty, mm -hmm. uh, more steak-like in consistency. You know, we want to give it every opportunity to create the Maillard reaction on the grill. So starting with really good, clean grates, uh, just a touch of oil. And then uh, where most people mess up on seafood is they start touching it too quickly. They don't allow that reaction to occur to really just let the proteins kind of lift themselves off of the grate. If you're working with, um, you know, solutions like maybe uh, or ingredients like flounder or trout, typically those are going to be a little bit more um, less dense. And so oftentimes I tell people to use maybe a, a pan or like a grilling basket, something like that, where we're not having to to flip it or turn it too much. Um, again, just kind of set yourself up for success and you can just look and touch the, the filet and have a good understanding. Is this going to stand up over high heat or maybe I need to put it in a basket or something along those lines and still perfume it with the charcoal and smoke, uh, but maybe not flip it and, and have that aha moment where it drops in the fire. I like that you offer these kind of tips and, and help with grilling the meat. And it's not just a book about how to cut up meat. It's not just butchering techniques. It is a book full of wonderful recipes as well as the importance of just butchering in general. And we need to, as you say, have a relationship with our butcher, go to them for advice, go to them for suggestions, 
and then follow the amazing recipes in your book. Matt Moore, author of Butcher on the Block. Thanks for spending some time and sharing your insight with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So you like the book, right? I think this book is fabulous because Matt is so smart about meat and his advice about cooking meat and talking to your butcher. It's the most important thing if you cook meat that you can do is develop a relationship with a local butcher, even if that butcher is inside the supermarket. You will get better cuts of meat. You'll learn about meat. They can teach you how to cook it. Matt knows that that's what you have to do. He talks about it in the book, and his recipes are fantastic. Yeah, it was just a great interview. It was nice to have him on because we've had a lot of vegans and vegetarians mm -hmm. on lately, and that's beautiful stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, if you know, I have cut down on the amount of meat I eat by a great deal. So, of course, I'm very interested in vegan and vegetarian recipes. But um, it was nice to have just an old-fashioned carnivore on the podcast <laughs> this week. Okay, so as is typical, our last segment, What's Making Us Happy in Food This Week? It's watermelon time again, and I oh, bought my God. first watermelon no. of the spring no. No. at the local supermarket no. yesterday. No, no. no it's the not. The watermelon's making me happy. No, and that's it's not. not a local watermelon. No, but it's not. It's no. still coming in. From where? I don't know. Probably Ecuador. Yeah, but, Uruguay uh, or actually, Bolivia. I think, no, actually, I think this one's from Florida. Well, this Texas boy just refuses to eat them until they come into the local farm. Oh, well, that's the end of August. Yeah. I'm not waiting till the end of August yeah. to have a watermelon. Bruce loves watermelon more than I can even say. What's making me happy food this week? Uh, our Snickerdoodles. Oh, I okay. I made a party for Bruce. Bruce sings with a Baroque group who uh, they perform, I don't know, lots of Baroque music, and Bach is too late for them. They're <laughs> earlier than that. They're really early Baroque music. Uh, and he sings with this group. And when our friends come to concerts, I make dinner, and I made 70 snickerdoodles, so many snickerdoodles, it was ridiculous. It was a recipe from our book, The Ultimate Cookbook, and it's my mom's old recipe. And to be honest with you, I just came here from St. Louis, and I took my mom a bag of the leftover snickerdoodles, and I was like, this is your recipe. She was very thrilled to get them, <laughs> despite her increasing A1C. She was very thrilled to get them. My mom's 90, so cut her a break. So, hey, I would like to have her A1C, so okay. let's go there. Oh, no, let's not. So I took her a bag, and she sat there snacking on them on the couch as we watched the news. So uh, that's about where I go with my mom at this point, is we watch the news together, and that's what visiting means. So anyway, it was really nice to make Snickerdoodles, such an old-fashioned U.S. cookie, at least if you're a, uh, a U.S. citizen of my age, you are really familiar with Snickerdoodles most likely. There were two Brits at the party. Oh, they didn't even know what they were. No, and they had no clue what they were. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, it's a thing. It's a thing, especially if you're my age and you grew up in the United States. Maybe Canada, too, for all I know. But sorry, I didn't grow up in Canada. Lamentably. Didn't grow right, up in say Canada. Say it right. <laughs> Canada, where the Canadians are from. Right. I didn't grow up in Canada. And so I... <laughs> I I don't know if Canadians know about the Snickerdoodles, but we sure did in the United States. Okay, that's our podcast for this week. Thanks for being a part of our podcast. We know that there are thousands of podcasts out there, and we are thrilled that you have chosen to listen to ours. And I will ask you, please, go to our Facebook group, also called Cooking with Bruce and Mark, where I share recipes, videos, conversations about food. I want to know what you had last night. I want to know what's making you happy in food this week, so you can share it there at Cooking with Bruce and Mark on Facebook and listen to more episodes of this podcast, Cooking with Bruce and Mark.